Hello and welcome to our new format, Micro Lessons, a bite-sized dose of inspiration and some practical performance strategies that will sit between our main episodes. It's really exciting to see that Inside the Mind of Champions is gathering momentum and that thousands of people around the world are benefiting from those insights we're sharing from the world's best thinkers and performers. Along with the rise in listener numbers, though, comes an increase in pressure to produce more content. So in these micro lesson episodes, I'll be sharing relevant snippets from the various client webinars, Q&A sessions and keynotes that I've been delivering. It's all geared to giving you more practical strategies to improve your own mindset and performance at work. I'll also be sharing some of the interviews I've done on other people's podcasts, and that's the source of today's micro lessons. They come from a conversation with the legendary England rugby player, Joe Marler, as I appeared in his show, aptly named The Joe Marler Show. As you'll hear, we discuss the rise in sports psychology, handling setbacks, trust, procrastination, sleep and creativity. So let's dive straight in. still like to stay on the sports psychology a bit for a minute and how it was always considered when I first started out that it was a bit of a fad. It was taken seriously but not. It was He was there if you wanted to go and speak to him but no one really did. The sort of old school guys like, what do you want to talk to a sports psychology for? Like, well they got to teach you mate. No, you need to learn how to scrummage, you need to learn how to lift, you need to learn how to tackle. You don't need to talk about your mind or anything like that. And yet now it's not a fad. Athletes are looking for that extra edge in everything that they do. We seem to be maximising everything physically and tactically and technically with all the different things. But it's the sports psychology part of it that I find that athletes are really finding really most powerful now to make them perform week in, week out. 100%. There was a decade of fitness where everyone looked for the advantage in fitness. Then I think there came a decade of technology analysis, analytics, even scouting, using different analytics and and ProZone and things like that came into sport. But of course, the last thing you can measure is what's going on in somebody's head. And that's why it still hasn't really come to the fore. So I think the next frontier in sport, without a doubt, and performance more generally, is the mental one. And there's absolutely no doubt about that. Because if you ask top performers what the biggest difference between their best and worst day is, which could be two days apart, It's their mindset. It's not their strategy. It's not their technique. It's not their physicality. The last competitive advantage for me is mindset, without a doubt. You know, why did I spend 95% of my time throwing balls around and whacking balls when the the 80% differentiator in my cricket was in my head? It's madness, but we just don't know how to do it. And it's not accessible. It's not spoken in plain English. And it has to change. It's as simple as that. What about procrastination? Now, I've spoken to a couple of friends of mine, one of which has gone from working in an office four or five times a week to everything from home in his spare room. Doesn't leave the house because he's doing meetings, Zooms, all this left, right and centre. But he finds himself always like, oh, how are you, mate? Or looking at Twitter or looking at Instagram in between calls and then doing a lot but not doing much. Do you know what I mean? How can we give some advice to anyone that's listening that's struggling with procrastination i think you know you've got to be motivated haven't you and i think one of the challenges is if people are feeling disconnected from their teams they're feeling disconnected from the sort of customers that they usually speak to they feel like they're just doing a mechanical sort of procedure that's for somebody else so i think you've got to try and reverse that 
you know, recalibrating your day. So you maybe get up early and go for a run or get some exercise or something. Do something for yourself so you feel like it's almost like you're one nil up before the day starts. And if your day's pretty boring, you know, you can sort of come off that high energy that you've created at the top of the day. So that's probably the first thing. And then I think it's just being realistic about what you've got to do and, and creating yourself a realistic rhythm. So it might be that you say, I'm going to absolutely smash this for 30 minutes, but it's so boring that I can't manage more than that. I think when we realise that we've got to do something for three hours, we, we stop doing it and we just fill the time with the pacifier or the comforter, which is social media. We grab that because it's just easier to do. So one thing is, you know, stick the phone in the garage or something so you can't get to it and just, you know, identify, right, I'm going to hit this for 30 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever it might be. Because usually when we've started things, we carry on. The hardest part is just starting. So I think get your phone out of the way, give yourself half an hour and attack it. I've read that four to five hours is the optimal time for creativity. Anything longer than that, you're just working for the sake of working. And the way you describe that is don't just work harder for longer if things aren't quite working out for you. It depends on the task, to be honest. I mean, again, I've interviewed some really interesting people, neuroscientists, and they talk about this idea of offline processing, that we've got this traditional idea that we just stare at the screen and, and the idea will come. But actually, they talk about these eureka moments actually coming when we might be out on a bike ride or a run or a walk. You know, the dog walk is where these ideas spark. So I think what working from home has done is given us permission to change our working day. And whereas when we went into lockdown, people might have gone from leaving, you know, normally they'd leave home at, say, 6.30 or 7, have an hour's commute, get to the office, have an hour's commute on the way back, back home at, at 6 or 7. And then I think early on in lockdown, people just expanded the day out to work from 7 in the morning till 7 at night. Well, that's not sustainable. So I think people are realising now that it's OK to have an extended lunch break or go for a dog walk or whatever in the afternoon or even see friends. If you've got to get through some real grunt work, then you really do have to put a shift in without a doubt. But if it is creative work, if it is innovative work, then just doing more of it isn't necessarily going to produce the genius ideas. Just some motivation. There's a couple of things. Someone once said to me that motivation is an external factor. Someone else needs to motivate you and inspiration comes from within. That's the one you should really be striving for, not relying upon someone else to tell you to do something, to motivate you to do it. I don't know. I mean, there's loads of phrases and quote cards and pictures and stuff. Inspiration means breathing fresh life into something. So it's got to come from somewhere. But when they talk in psychology around motivation, there's generally two fields. One is extrinsic motivation. So that's all the things that are outside of you. So that's things like rankings, uh, money, bonuses, praise from other people. They're external to you. And then there's intrinsic motivation, which is the things that are could be, um, you know, learning and development and growth. That gives you great satisfaction to learn a new skill. Autonomy, freedom and choice. That's another one. If you feel like you've got more freedom you're generally more motivated. And that could work in the business sense that if a boss gives you flexibility on how you organise your day, you're going to be more motivated to do it than if you're in a straight jacket and micromanaged minute by minute. So then another one which we'd all know is that sense of community, that teamwork, that bond that, that we've got, which again, sadly, has been compromised by everyone working at home. So I know a lot of people don't particularly enjoy the company, they don't particularly enjoy the job that they do, but they love working with a group of people you know, they have a social life with those people and, and that's what takes them to work. 
There's something, Jeremy, that, that me and Joe have been trying to work on, haven't we, Joe? Which is trust. <laughs> <laughs> can you give us a few tips of how we can build trust? Hmm. I think there is some psychologist made a trust equation, which I'm just trying to remember what it uh, what it had in it. It had credibility. So if you're good at what you do, uh, it had consistency. So if you're good at what you do and you do it regularly, then I'll trust you more. If you're good at what you do, you do it consistently and you're transparent and show some sort of vulnerability and show me as much as you possibly can, then those are really good things for building trust. So you're being honest, you're being consistent, you always show up on time and you're pretty good at what you do. So I'm beginning to trust you. But the thing that smashes all that out of the park under the equation, the denominator is self-interest. So if you're telling me something that's just to look after yourself, I don't trust you. So you can be good consistent and tell me what you want but if i think you're looking out for yourself trust is gone i think it was a neuroscientist who was talking about um the effects lack of sleep has now i live about 70 miles away from the training ground at quinn's so it's 140 miles round trip every day or five times a week and i'm a bit of a night owl so i don't get to bed till about 11 half 11 and I'm up about five on the road before R5, otherwise the M25 is a nightmare. So my, my average is about five or six hours. But you've spoken to a neuroscientist, haven't you, that the effects that lack of sleep and what cortisol actually physically does to the body and how detrimental to it is it? Can you just give us a little Yeah, bit? well, I think that's another area of huge advantage. Again, you know, we've we've sort of, I always think that we're best looking back at our primitive world. You know, we, we went to sleep when it went dark around the campfire and that was it. And, and you know, woke up feeling fresh and ready to go. But you know, we, we're staying up later and later. We've got blue light on our phones and the addictive properties of social media, I think, late at night are dangerous. Um, you know, there's a survey about the scary number of people wake up and the first thing they do is is go to the phones as well. And, and it's dangerous to do that. I think, uh, you know, we've got the fight and flight system in our body, but we've also got that rest and digest system. And I think in this stressful environment, we've got the fight and flight primed and, and an eight out of ten but probably our rest and digest is it too. I remember listening to a podcast you did with Stuart Broad and he always learned the most from his losses, from his failures. And we, as sports people and business people and the, the crossover there, we're always trying to win. We're always trying to get the promotion. We're always trying to get the project in on time. It's always about right thingy. And yet you speak to one of the top <coughs> cricketers in the world and his biggest learnings are from his failures. But if we're always winning, how do you differentiate between learning when you win and learning when you lose? If we think about people who have a, a sort of a weaker mindset, they will tend to perform a particular skill. Let's say we, we're um, taking a penalty in football. You know, you, you would miss that penalty. You'd be obviously catastrophizing it. And, and, and then after that, you would just interpret that I'm shit. That's it. I'm done that's me it's more than just my football it's me as a person it's going to last forever and it's fixed there's nothing I can do about it so that's if you imagine at one end of the spectrum it's all of me um, it lasts forever and there's nothing I can do about it it's fixed then at the other end of the spectrum the people who are most resilient they process failures and mistakes in the opposite way they would say I missed that penalty because at 10 past three on that Saturday afternoon I placed the ball down and as I walked back to the the mark I wasn't thinking straight. I hadn't picked my target. I hadn't committed to that top right corner. So that's why I missed it. So I can improve that and train from that and improve. So they see it as a specific skill at a specific time that can be improved. 
So I think just that that ability to frame setbacks. If you're going to be a high performer, you're going to you're going to fail a lot more than you're going to win, just by definition. But you've got to compartmentalize it to say I failed with that particular project or that speech that we were talking about earlier because I didn't prepare myself properly. I didn't consider the audience. I didn't get my tone right. So I'm not a failure. Full stop. I failed in that particular thing, mm. and I will move forward. So that's that's a really powerful mental skill. A few years ago, maybe like three years ago, I had this idea in, in my old job at the BBC that I wanted to get into the head of a place kicker in rugby. Like what it's like when you're bending down over a kicking tee at Twickenham, 80,000 people in the stadium, millions watching at home. So I had two conversations. I had one with Charlie Hodgson when he's at Sarries. And I said, is that the loneliest place in the world at that point? And he went, yeah, it is. And he says, yeah, you do start thinking about, oh, my parents are watching this and... It's all on me. And it was really quite heartrending. And then about two hours later, I asked the same question of Owen Farrell. Is that the loneliest place in the world? He looked at me like I was mad and he went, no, I just kick him ball. <laughs> and I wondered if that was in some ways the secret or one of the secrets to, to Owen, who obviously you know so well from England duty, one of the reasons he is so good is that he's not overthinking it. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he's just playing that a little bit cooler than he actually is, mate. I'm with Joe on that. I think that Owen is much more sophisticated in his approach than that. You just can't be as consistent as that by just thinking nothing. And I think that's one of the misconceptions around sports psychology. You know, coaches just say, oh, just clear your mind. Just clear your mind. (laughs) And it's absolute bollocks because if somebody had said to me in that night in India with 120,000 people and the negative voice of Satan in my head, you know, clear your mind, I would have just punched them probably. You know, what you have to do, I almost think of your brain being like a, a sort of a dustbin and, and it works best when it's empty. So if you imagine then the dustbin is starting to fill up with, you know, loads of shit, basically. And that's the pressure. That's the expectation. That's the scoreboard. That's the critic in the press. That's the fear of getting hurt. That's the shame of, you know, missing the kick, the consequence of failure. All that shit flies into the bucket and now it's rattling around in your head and you can't stop that. So where sports psychologists work is they try and create a lid for the bucket. We try and give such a structured set of mannerisms leading into that instinctive kick that the player knows that they can dial down the volume of all that external distraction and dial up their internal processes that they focus on to deliver a good kick. So you have to let go of the the sort of consequence of failure and dial everything up to say, okay, when I place the ball in this position point, and they they would have this to the millimetre, how they position the ball, their their walk back as they walk back to kick is millimetre precise. They know exactly what they're doing. The visualisation that they might see the ball going through the path and sort of hitting a lady in the middle of the stand at the back, it doesn't actually get that far, but they visualise that perfect trajectory. And then they've got those deep breaths that they're doing both physiologically to relax their muscles because that's how they learnt the skill in a relaxed state, not tense. So they need to get back closer to that so that the muscles are the same length and, and they feel the same. But also to just calm the mind because when we focus on our breathing, that helps to shut down some of that chatter. So you can't think nothing, basically. So you think something that's useful. So you use these blockers like counting their feet. One, two, three, set, deep breath. Look at the middle of the posts. Okay, hip right through. Are you ready? Yes. Big breath in, lean forward, and then you switch off. So as soon as you as soon as you get into that mode, you've gone. You've let go of it and you're playing instinctively. 
So I hope you enjoyed this new format. Do send me a note and let me know what you think on email, LinkedIn or Twitter. And I'll be back with another new episode of the main show very soon. If you want to listen to this episode of The Joe Marler Show in full, I'll add a link in the show notes. And if you'd like to join our growing Sporting Edge community as a member, then there's also going to be a link and a promotion code there too. When you join, you'll have full access to our incredible video library and over a thousand coaching resources that are inspiring coaches, entrepreneurs and execs all around the world. I really look forward to welcoming you. So until next time, keep learning, keep positive, and I'll see you soon.